This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker um, and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, I'm very well. Um, great to be joining you on a very unusual Monday evening. A very unusual Monday evening because I'm, because I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. I don't know where Ash is. No, one's, no one tells me these things. Um, but it's great to have you on board, Aaron. Um, coming up later tonight, Human Rights Watch have said that Israel is not complying with the provisional measures outlined by the ICJ. Um, we'll also discuss the pretty distressing footage you might have seen of someone protesting Israel's war in Gaza by self-immolation outside the Israeli embassy in the United States. Um, and the media are in outrage at Charlotte Church because she's led a choir singing about Palestine. We'll be speaking to Charlotte Church later in the show. Stay tuned for all of that. First story, though. Rishi Sunak has declared the Tories do not have a problem with Islamophobia. That's amid a new row about anti-Muslim racism in the party. As you're probably aware, that row has been prompted, um, or was prompted, late last Friday by this man, Lee Anderson. I don't actually believe that these Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London, and they've got control of Storm as well. People are just turning up in their thousands and doing anything they want, and they are laughing. They are laughing at our place, and I feel absolutely disgusted. And again, this stems with Khan. He's, 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 he's actually given our, given our capital city away to his mates. We've got Stormer there. We're using Khan's pockets. Anybody who's thinking about voting for reform at the election who thinks this is going to sort out all our problems, look, beware. Because if you let Labour in through the back door, expect more of this and expect our cities to be taken over by these lunatics. Now, that reference to Sadiq Khan as controlled by Islamists was deemed as deeply offensive by most right-thinking people, including Sadiq Khan. These comments from a senior Conservative are Islamophobic, are anti-Muslim and are racist. We've seen over the last uh, two days uh, confirmation that over the last few months there's been an increase in anti-Muslim cases by more than 330%. Uh, these comments uh, pour fuel on the fire of anti-Muslim uh, hatred. And I'm afraid the deafening silence from Rishi Sunak and from the cabinet is uh, them condoning uh, this uh, racism. And I'm afraid it confirms to many people across the country uh, that there's a hierarchy when it comes to racism. Now, after that response from Khan, the Conservative Party's chief whip announced that Anderson had been suspended. Um, that was, quote, following refusing to apologise for his comments. Rishi Sunak was asked about that suspension this morning. How do you account for Lee Anderson's comments and your decision to suspend him? Well, I said his, clearly his choice of words wasn't acceptable. It was wrong. And that's why the whip was suspended. Words matter, especially in the current environment where tensions are running high. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to choose them carefully. How frustrating is it that he hasn't apologised for those comments? Well, I said, look, the, the most important thing is that people realise that the words they use in a situation that we're in now where said tensions are running higher than I think any of us would like and my priority is to try and take the heat out of this situation. I think that's what everyone wants to see and that's why words matter and his words weren't acceptable, they were wrong and that's why the whip was suspended. So Anderson's comments were wrong and inappropriate, says Sunak, but were they wrong and inappropriate because they were racist and Islamophobic? 
or something else. Well, Sunak didn't say, and he wasn't pressed on that by the BBC journalist. But over on Sky, Transport Secretary Mark Harper was. You say it was wrong. Was it racist? Well, it was wrong, and uh, I'm not going to get into arguing about the rights and wrongs of what he said. It was wrong. In my book, wrong is a strong word. Uh, it was it's not a true. Different word to racist. As I said, Sadiq Khan's got a ter- Sadiq Khan's got a terrible record on his uh, track record as mayor of London. That's not my Lots question, Mr. Harper. You've already dealt before. with that matter. My question is: Was it racist what he said? Well, look, I'm not going to get into a detailed analysis of what he said. What he said was wrong and it wasn't true. He shouldn't have said it. He failed to take the opportunity to retract those comments and apologise. That's yeah. why there was firmly... Lots of people are wrong. I'm wrong on a daily basis. I'm not a racist. <laughs> no, but what he said about Sadiq Khan was uh, profoundly racist? wrong. Racist? Those things were not true. They're not true. Uh, and what he said was wrong. Uh, and he shouldn't have said them, as I said. There's a range of things we can criticise Sadiq Khan for. He's got a terrible track record on transport. And that's what I'm going yeah, to say. Yeah, you've told to me that already, Mr Harper. I've allowed you to say that three times now. Well, as you saw from Mark Harper's jacket there, he's Transport Secretary, not the Deputy Prime Minister, so my apologies there. Labour's Annalise Dodds has called out the Tories for refusing to call Lee Anderson's words Islamophobic. So she tweeted this. This was in response to the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, Why are senior Conservatives finding it so hard to call out Islamophobia? Perhaps because the Conservatives still refuse to adopt the definition used by every other major political party in Britain. To tackle the scourge of Islamophobia, we must name it. Well, Kemi Badenoch has responded to that with this tweet. We use the term anti-Muslim hatred. It makes clear the law protects Muslims. In this country, we have a proud tradition of religious freedom and the freedom to criticize religion. The definition of Islamophobia she uses creates a blasphemy law via the back door if adopted. Now, this is the definition of Islamophobia which Labour have adopted and the Tories are opposed to. Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. The definition of, of anti-Semitism, sort of, if you go to the report, actually has lots of examples. They've basically made it the complete mirror um, of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. So, I, you know, just as I think there were problems with that definition of anti-Semitism, I think it's perfectly reasonable to suggest there may or may not be um, problems with the with the definition of, of Islamophobia, which was offered um, by that committee of MPs. Um, it seems more specific, though, what the Tories and are opposed to, which is calling Islamophobia a form of racism. They don't seem to be happy with that at all, and which is why it seems they won't call um, what Lee Anderson said racist. Um, Aaron, what's your what's your position on this? I mean, there's this debate about definitions. Does it matter if the Tories sort of will will state that what Lee Anderson said was racist instead of just wrong and inappropriate? No, it's really stupid. I don't care about definitions. Um, what Lee Anderson said was inaccurate. Uh, and he was clearly saying it because of the religion of Mayor Sadiq Khan. So firstly, this idea that Islamists control London is patently nonsense, disproved not least by the fact that yesterday evening, Lee Anderson posted a picture on Twitter of him drinking a pint in London. Uh, generally speaking, when Islamists control places, there aren't pubs serving madri. Uh, and I think we had this weird nexus of ideas and labels and enemies that the right tries to confect. So we have Schrodinger's mayor, Sadiq Khan. He's both pro-LGBTQ, ultra-liberal, libertine, 
People can do what they like. London itself is this hotbed of identity politics and uh, people embracing all kinds of uh, different identities and viewpoints and perspectives. It's a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet at the same time, apparently, somehow, it's also somewhere where there's Sharia and Islamists control the most senior elected politician. It's clearly nonsensical. It can't be both of these things. Uh, but in the increasingly conspiratorial mind world of British conservatism, they have to do that because anybody who disagrees with them is an enemy, a heretic, and must be eliminated, evil, malevolent. Uh, and so I think that explains a lot of it, the politics here. Look, uh, Sadiq Khan is a vanilla liberal who just happens to be a Muslim. I mean, watch the New Year's fireworks show every year and, and the political content of it. Sadiq Khan's probably too liberal for me. He's a very liberal man uh, who, who just happens to be, I'm very liberal, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but the point is I, I, he couldn't be more liberal. Uh, so this idea that he's also in hock to Islamists is clearly being said simply because he himself is a Muslim. Um, it's absurd, it's ridiculous, but it betrays something also much deeper with the Conservative Party, Michael, which is a political problem for them, which is that they are no longer a party which represents cities in this country. You know, they have one MP in Birmingham, I think they had three in London, they're probably going to lose all of them, maybe they'll keep one. So they are no longer in touch with the cities, particularly of England. And I'll finish with this. One thing I heard in response to what Lee Anderson said was that millions of conservative voters agree with him. Well, they're welcome to do that. They're also wrong. And they're also engaging in prejudicial uh, rhetoric and behavior. Um, they simply don't understand what England's cities look like in the 2020s. They're center-left. They're liberal. They're diverse. That does not mean they're controlled by Islamists. In fact, the politics of these two things couldn't be further apart. I think that point is, is very strange, isn't it, what we've got in, in England at the moment, where you've got all of this scaremongering about how London has gone to pot with all of these statements that anyone who lives in London or comes here often would just think are completely ridiculous. Right? You've got, you, the, the only way you could possibly believe that London has been taken over by Islamists is if you have not been to London for a very, very long time. So you saw all of these scare stories for people that don't live in the place that we're supposed to be scared of. Very strange. In fact, lots of people want to live in London, which is why the rents are incredibly high. Um, that is actually a story we're going to get onto later in the show, sort of from a different direction. Of course, Lee Anderson is not alone in courting Islamophobia this past week. On Friday, former Home Secretary Suella Braverman penned an article claiming Islamists are, quote, bullying Britain into submission. And the day before, former Prime Minister Liz Truss said this to Steve Bannon. There's going to be a by-election in the next few weeks, and it could be a radical Islamic party winning that by-election. So that Islamic, is a possibility. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're saying an Islamic radical party in a couple of weeks in a special election is in one of these Midland urban uh, areas that had it's the Rochdale. So it's an urban area hold in the it. north of England. But it's the one that's had the, the rape situation. Yes. The grooming situation. Yes. Hang on, I don't understand this. The grooming situation. Tommy Robinson. All these heroes fought it the rape situation, and in that community, you're going to have a special election, and you may have a radical jihadist party send somebody to Commons that, after that all that correct. problem? That is correct. So two shocking things, right? He references Tommy Robinson, calls him a hero, right? No response whatsoever from Liz Truss. Doesn't pick up on that or doesn't think it's worth commenting on. And two, that was such a misinformed and 
misleading representation of, of what is going on in Rochdale right now. Now, there isn't a radical Islamist party which is going to win an election by promising radical Islamism, right? Which is, you know, you, you saw their sort of Steve Bannon paint this picture. Oh, this is the place where you have Muslim grooming gangs and now you're getting a radical Islamist party who want to install radical Islamism in this, this part of, of Britain. There was a very clear picture that being painted to Americans. The reality, of course, is that there is a candidate, George Galloway, who is standing in that constituency because he is sort of against what's going on in Palestine, whatever you think of him. You know, I don't have much warmth towards George Galloway, but he's basically standing on a completely single-issue campaign in that constituency, and all the other parties are sort of a little bit haywire. So it's possible he will win. This is not a radical Islamist takeover of a British constituency, as Liz Truss seemed to be sort of happy to, to scare Americans about. So pretty disgraceful comments from both Suella Braverman and Liz Truss. Other Tories, though, clearly want in on the action. This was Tory MP Paul Scully speaking to BBC Radio London today. Do you think the Conservative sure. Party has an issue with Islamophobia or anti-Muslim sentiment? Look, and it's a fair question to, 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 to ask. Well, I would say you're right. If you were just looking about the um, neighbourhood comments, if you're just looking at colour of skin um, and, uh, you know, so, for example, when uh, a number of Indians were coming in the 70s and, uh, you know, my right. father's half Burmese, so I've, see, I've, you know, I've seen it firsthand. Um, and if it's about the colour of skin, that's one thing. You do see, well, I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is if you look at um, parts of Tower Hamlets, for example, where, where people have, there are no go areas, parts of Birmingham, Spark Hill, but uh, there, were, there are no go areas, mainly because of doctrine and mainly because of people um, sort of using, uh, their, abusing in many ways their religion to, uh, to uh, you know, because it's not the doctrine of Islam to, to, to um, espouse some of these, what some of these people are saying. That, I think, is the concern that needs to be addressed. Now, again, this is something that you can only sort of put forward as a theory if you have never been to the place that they are talking about. It always makes me laugh, like the idea of, of Tower Hamlets as a no-go area for people who aren't Muslim. Because right? the idea you get on oh, no-go zone, it's going to be very, very socially conservative there. You don't want to be there if you're not a Muslim. God, you definitely wouldn't want to be there if you were, were gay. Well, this is the part of London that, I mean, it used to have a lot more gay bars than it does now. The reason it doesn't have so many gay bars is not because there are any Muslims causing any problems. It's because the rents went up because so many people want to live in Tower Hamlets. Right? <laughs> the idea that Tower Hamlets is now some kind of no-go zone, the only reason people are leaving Tower Hamlets is because they can't afford to be there anymore, right? Got nothing to do with social conservatism or Islam. There are still some good gay bars in Tower Hamlets, but as I say, less than there used to be. The problem is not Muslims. It's rents rising. It's gentrification when it comes to that particular issue. Um, Lee Anderson has also released his response to his suspension, which I think pretty much sums up the problem with public discourse right now. So he says this, I made some comments yesterday that some people thought were divisive. Politics is divisive. And I am just incredibly frustrated about the abject failures of the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Khan called for an immediate ceasefire weeks ago with no conditions while the hostages are still there, being held at gunpoint by a terrorist organization. Hundreds of people have been arrested for racist abuse on these marches, and we barely heard a peep from the mayor. Now, I don't think that's true. I don't think hundreds, over 100 people have been arrested, but not for racist abuse, and hundreds suggest you've got over 200, right? If these marches were about something less fashionable, Sadiq Khan would have been first to call for them to be cancelled. It's double standards for political benefit. But when you think you are right, you should never apologize, because to do so would be a sign of weakness. Now, as I say, this, I think, summarizes the problem with discourse in this country at the moment, because... What Lee Anderson sees as the problem is that you've got a lot of protesters who are upset about a genocidal war going on in 
Gaza, in Palestine. And the fact that a lot of the people on those protests are Muslims, right, because they, you know, they feel some camaraderie and with the people of Palestine, suddenly makes this uh, a demonstration of extremism. And I've been a lot of those demonstrations, and they're the most peaceful, family-friendly demonstrations I think I've probably ever been on, right? I've been on demos which are pretty aggy. You know, the student demos back in 2010, the austerity demos in, in 2011. Now, in those demos, you had sort of buildings getting smashed. You had people masked up. You had, little, you had people fighting cops, right? No one then was talking about a problem with, with violent extremism in the country because most of the people protesting were white people, right? So it, 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 there wasn't this huge extremism problem. But now suddenly, because the people protesting are, are brown, um, this is a sign of, of a dangerous sort of extremism that we've allowed to, to build up in this country. When I mean, these are just a bunch of nice families calling for peace. They don't want people to be killed halfway across the world by an ally. Seems perfectly reasonable to me. That is not a sign of extremism. That's a sign of moderation, right? We want peace. When did that become a, a, an extremist demand, an extremist call? Let's go on to our next story. Very much related, as you'd imagine. It's been 30 days since the International Court of Justice found it plausible that Israel has been committing genocidal acts in Gaza. The court ordered Israel to prevent genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, to enable the provision of basic services and humanitarian assistance, and to prevent and punish incitement to commit genocide by officials and military staff. It also demanded that Israel submit a report on its progress in meeting these orders, a report that's due today. So Israel will be reporting to the ICJ today. Um, the evidence suggests the world court shouldn't be impressed with what they've done since that ruling came. Now, a report by Human Rights Watch has found Israel is not complying with the order from the ICJ. Um, and they say this, Israel continues to obstruct the provisions of basic services and the entry and distribution within Gaza of fuel and life-saving aid, acts of collective punishment that amount to war crimes and include the use of starvation of civilians as a weapon of war. Fewer trucks have entered Gaza and fewer aid missions have been permitted to reach northern Gaza in the several weeks since the ruling than in the weeks preceding it, according to the United Nations Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Of course, we've witnessed Israel act with increasing ferocity throughout the month of February. In the last 30 days alone, Israel has killed more than 3,500 people in Gaza. That's an average of 120 Palestinians killed each day. They've also attacked civilian infrastructure like hospitals, including southern Gaza's largest medical complex, the Nasser Hospital. Displacement of civilians has also continued with thousands of people forced to leave Khan Yunis after it came under siege. Many of them made their way to Rafah on the Egyptian border, but the roughly one and a half million Gazans in Rafah have suffered near daily shelling ahead of Israel's threatened ground offensive. Overcrowding, poor sanitation and food shortages are also raising the threat of hunger and outbreaks of disease. Meanwhile, in northern Gaza, famine looms. UNRWA and the World Food Programme have halted food delivery, saying it is now too dangerous for their staff to travel there. I'm joined now by Omar Shakir, Israel-Palestine lead at Human Rights Watch. Um, welcome to the show. Can you talk us through sort of the key findings? You've sort of said that you don't think, or your organisation has said that you don't think Israel is sort of complying um, with the ICJ orders. Um, why? Why have you come to that conclusion? Sure. So the ICJ a month ago said very clearly that Israel was legally bound to ensure basic services and humanitarian aid are being provided to the people of Gaza. On basic services, Israel continues to keep the switch of electricity off, as it's been doing since October 7th. On water, 
Uh, there are three main lines that enter Gaza via Israel. One remains shut off by Israel. Another is inoperable because of damage from Israeli airstrikes primarily. And the third one is operating at 47% capacity. There's virtually no clean water for people in Gaza. When it comes to trucks before October 7th, you had about 500 trucks a day entering. Before the ICJ ruling, if you look at the period of January 1st to 26th, you had about 147 trucks, way below 500. That has dropped dramatically since more than one third, if you look at the uh, next uh, three weeks plus compared to the prior ones. But if you look specifically at February 9th to 21st, basically the last two weeks, it's dropped by more than half the level it was um, in January. And it's not just about trucks entering Gaza. It's about um, the trucks moving outside um, within outside of Rafah in all of Gaza. And according to a survey of humanitarian organizations talking about challenges since January 26, they basically said aid is not going outside of Rafah. And so you have a situation in which while 80 plus percent of missions to bring aid to northern Gaza in October through December were going to the north, the number is fewer than 20 percent today. So basically aid is not reaching all parts of Gaza. So Israel has not just ignored the ICJ order, it's intensified some of its repression of Palestinians. I don't think many people in our audience will be surprised that Israel hasn't sort of looked at this order and said, oh, brilliant. Yeah, let's completely change what we're doing. We'll, we'll completely comply w- with this, right? They're, they are, uh, you know, as, as my colleague Aaron just said, you've got, got government ministers saying, hey, schmeg, they don't seem to be taking this particularly seriously. But I had kind of assumed that they might get, you know, slightly better with the world's sort of eyes now more firmly um, on Gaza. It can no longer be called ridiculous that this is a genocidal war because the ICJ have said that's a plausible case. And, and what your findings seem to suggest, yeah, as, as you've said, is that there are, it's not only that there, are not, that there are still not sufficient trucks getting into Gaza, but they've fallen. Now, what is your explanation for that? How can we make sense of the fact that the ICJ have made this historic ruling and Israel's behavior has got even worse? Look, I mean, Israel has shown, as uh, your prior, prior guest said, a blatant disregard for the world court. And it stems from decades of impunity, of disregard for international law and institutions. To answer your question, the survey that was done of humanitarian organizations over the last month cited several challenges um, that have made the situation worse. One is the lack of transparency on what can enter via Gaza. Second is delays and denials at Israeli checkpoints. And finally is the lack of security for trucks. On February 5th, the UN said and CNN documented that an aid convoy had been struck, apparently by an Israeli um, airstrike. Now, Israel cites a lot of excuses for why aid isn't reaching there. I expect their report today, which isn't public, the court hasn't ordered it be made public, will cite these excuses. Things like, well, Hamas is diverting it, you know, well, the UN isn't processing it far enough, well, you know, there isn't uh, the police in Gaza haven't been providing security. But let's remember, as a matter of international humanitarian law, Israel, as the occupying power, is charged to meet the needs of the population of Gaza and ensure the welfare of the population. Israel's ground forces have no problem reaching all parts of Gaza. Their bombs have no problem reaching all parts of Gaza. They clearly have the capacity to ensure aid reaches all parts of Gaza, but they're not doing it. And they've been saying very clearly 
for months that they're depriving the population of food, of water, of medicine, uh, basic necessities for survival as part of the strategy in this conflict, which is a war crime. It's starvation as a weapon of war. It's collective punishment. It's blocking of life-saving aid. These are all war crimes. Could you talk our audience through what this reporting back process means? I mean, at the time of, we spoke to you actually on that day, the time that sort of the ICJ order was made. And one of the orders made to Israel was to say, you're going to have to come back and, and, and report on whether or not you are meeting meeting these orders. Um, you know, we're now in that process. Should we expect the ICJ to come out and say, we've, we've, we've looked at this report back and we're happy with it, or we've looked at this report back and we're unhappy with it or is this sort of a negotiation that goes on in private what's what what happens now right now israel submit sub, today submitting its report um the court did not indicate that that would be made public uh what we know is that south africa which is the other party in this uh in this hearing will be allowed to see it and will be allowed to comment and respond to it now the court has the option to issue additional provisional measures it has the option to issue its own uh ruling or it may not. These findings may factor into its, the underlying hearing on the merits at the International Court of Justice. So we don't know exactly what the court will decide to do. Uh, we don't know whether this opinion will be made public in one way or another by the parties, by the court, by somebody else. But what we do know is that Israel's report will be submitted today. South Africa will see it, have a chance to respond, and the court has the power to issue additional measures or to issue uh, a comment on the, the non-enforcement. Um, but but ultimately, um, it could wait till the underlying hear, uh, hearing on the merits, but we believe the duty is now on states. The evidence is clear that Israel is not complying with the order and states should use all forms of leverage, including sanctions and embargoes to press Israel to comply. I, I don't wanna be overly dramatic, but I wanna be clear what's at stake here. This is a direct challenge to the rules-based international order. We're talking about uh, the world's court. Their order is being ignored. The failure to ensure compliance undermines the very institutions that are created out of the ashes of World War II to protect civilians and to ensure respect for international law. Nothing less than the integrity of that order is what's at stake. Have we seen any developments there? So, I mean, it's been 30 days since the IGCJ sort of put forward its orders. Are we seeing any movements from sort of states, governments, organizations to sort of distance themselves from what Israel are doing or, you know, at the extreme and to be applying sanctions to Israel? Look, um, there's been some movement, uh, you know, a court in the Netherlands, for example, issued an order um, uh, that the government is now appealing to stop the provision of some uh, support, military support to Israel. There are ongoing legal proceedings that have either been initiated or are being challenged or appealed in one way in the UK, in the US, um, and in Germany. Obviously, there have been statements from governments. Some have been a bit stronger than statements we've seen before, but ultimately, they've not been enough. And, you know, we see every day scores of bodies of Palestinians, uh, you know, uh, continue to build up more than 3,400 Palestinians killed just since the court's um, order. So it's not enough. We need world action to prevent atrocities. We've seen some shifts here and there. I mean, uh, even from the U.S. side in terms of the Rafah potential military incursion warnings about Israel not falling, um, not if what it would mean if Israel went forward. But even as we debate, we need to keep our focus on Rafah because of what's at stake there. Any sort of uh, ground incursion 
uh, when, when there's no safe place to go in Gaza would be catastrophic and unlawful. But we're not seeing enough done. Before we begin this section, it contains discussion um, of suicide. An active duty member of the U.S. Air Force has died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. 25-year-old Aaron Bushnell could be heard shouting, Free Palestine, as he burned to death. Bushnell live-streamed these moments as he approached the Israeli embassy. I am an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. We decided the video of, of Bushnell's self-immolation was too graphic to show here, but it has been viewed millions of times on, on Twitter. And this was Aaron Bushnell's final post on Facebook. So he tweeted, not tweeted, sorry, he posted this. Many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is, you're doing it right now. Um, in a separate incident in December last year, a protester set themselves on fire outside an Israeli consulate office. Now, in that instance, um, the protester and a guard were hospitalized with burns, but both um, both survived in that instance. Now, many media organizations seem to be struggling um, with how to report this case. There are understandably lots of sensitivities um, when it comes to reporting on suicide. At the same time, Bushnell's actions fall within a tradition of, of protest and self-sacrifice that spans from Buddhists in Vietnam to the protest that sparked the Arab Spring. Um, Aaron, how should we talk about this? I mean, obviously, suicide an incredibly sensitive issue. We're often, you know, said that, you know you shouldn't, it shouldn't be glamorized, um, but at the same time, this is an act of of protest, and you know, we should kind of respect this man's intentions he, he meant this to be an act of protest or we can you know it, it seems he did i mean uh, what, what do you make of this situation what can we say about it well i thought his words were incredibly powerful i mean obviously the act itself is extraordinary it's a supreme act really of protest and dissent but the words he said prior to that i thought gave it such important context and of course people will try to will try to dismiss or to undermine or discredit what he's done because of mental health issues or or whatever but I think those words he says prior to the act clearly underscore uh, his political commitments and his reasoning. And he's talking really in the language of, of anti-imperialism. And he says that our elites, and I don't think he means just the United States, I think he means really the entire West, our elites are committed, happy with these levels of destruction. This is what they have in, in, in mind for all of us. Uh, words to that effect, paraphrasing. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that the whole world is going to look like Gaza and they'll be saying that. But what is the case, and this is where there are clear connections to, for instance, the protests against Vietnam, the best part of half a century ago, Michael, 
uh, is that, or more than half a century ago, is that people outside the global core, outside Europe, outside North America, outside the West, the global North, are viewed as less important. Their lives are viewed as less valuable, less sacred, and therefore immeasurably more destruction and death uh, can be placed upon them before anybody really cares, or before any politicians certainly risk their career. And to use a hackneyed kind of analog, I mean, that's perfectly obvious in how our political class has responded to what's going on in Ukraine, to what's going on in Gaza. Uh, that's not a frivolous throwaway point. I mean, it's a very obvious contrast there. And he's right to say that the events that we've seen really since October are, in a way, our future, unless people stand up uh, to ensure otherwise. Uh, as your previous guest mentioned, this is a test now for what the global community wants for its future, whether it's possible to simply discard and dismiss what the ICJ demands of a state when it's being um, presented with allegations potentially of genocide. Uh, and I, I find an interesting analog here to Israel's development of nuclear weapons. Uh, that was clearly at odds with non-proliferation. They didn't sign that treaty, but there was a treaty which was trying to minimize proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world. Israel completely um, ignored that. Uh, other countries in the region therefore try and uh, build their own domestic nuclear weapons programs, Iraq, Iran. You can say, well, that's nonsense. Israel deserves them. They th face existential challenges. You can say all of that. It's clearly at odds with ideas of non-proliferation. They developed those weapons and that technology in secret, and they only told the world about it once they had it. So that should tell you something about the fact they knew what they were doing was wrong. And in a way, that sabotaged efforts at non-proliferation. And I think we're seeing really an active sabotage now um, at the level of international law, but far more so. Far more so. Because, of course, any despot or authoritarian can look at how Israel is simply uh, dismissed the ICJ, Haig Schmeig, and they can say, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And this is really, I think, the central takeaway from Israel-Gaza. Um, if you're not interested in political affairs or you think, well, I am interested, I care, but what can I do about it? You're welcome to have that opinion. What I would say is that the political consequence of this will play out for decades, maybe a century, in so much as the architecture we've had since 1945 not perfect, far from it, but something, certainly an improvement on what went before, uh, is being rapidly undermined. And so what this person did was an extraordinary act of sacrifice, entirely politically coherent. And I question anyone who says that actually this was an act of somebody suffering from mental ill health. Um, we shouldn't see it as the supreme act of uh, political dissent. That's certainly uh, my read on it. Lots of people in the comments saying "rest in power," Aaron Bushnell. I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I say, you know, I, I didn't. We didn't want to show, you know, the act on this because I feel like it should be, you know, your choice whether to seek that out. But it is both distressing but incredibly powerful. So you sort of hear this man's final words, um, as you say, when he's sort of making the ultimate sacrifices, just to say, "Free Palestine, free Palestine, free Palestine," and you can sort of hear the, I mean, what must be the sort of unbelievable pain. Um, he he was going through. Um, we'll we'll leave this there. But yes, um, I of course concur with with everyone I can see in the comments saying saying rest in power to Aaron Bushnell. 
let's go on to our next story. Charlotte Church is a singer who has sold over 10 million records worldwide. She's also politically active and has recently organized a choral event in support of Palestine. Now, that looked like a lovely event to me for a very good cause. But not everyone is happy. If you Google Charlotte Church and news at the moment, this is what you'll find. So um, the BBC, Charlotte Church denies anti-Semitism after pro-Palestine chant. Um, the Independent, Charlotte Church denies River to the Sea song is anti-Semitic. Um, the Times, Charlotte Church defends singing from the River to the Sea. Um, the Telegraph, Charlotte Church under fire for leading choir in rendition of From the River to the Sea. GB News, Charlotte Church slammed as she leads a hundred-strong pro-Palestine choir singing from the river to the sea. I'm an LBC, Charlotte Church, slammed. So again, uh, the same verb for singing controversial from the river to the sea chant at pro-Palestine charity concert. God, they really could all be written by AI, couldn't they? Not very um, uh, original, any of them. Um, the hoo-ha has largely um, been spread by the right-wing campaign group Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, who told The Independent this. At best, Charlotte Church has been tone-deaf, but at worst, she is using the voice for which she is so well known to fan the flames of hatred. You cannot stoop lower than using your stardom to teach kids to sing extremist lyrics in a village hall. The controversy is mainly about the phrase from the river to the sea being used in one of the songs. The Daily Mail writes this. Footage has emerged showing how the 38-year-old star led a choir in the protest chant at a Sing for Palestine event in Kefili, South Wales. The Welsh singer, draped in a kefir scarf in solidarity with those in Palestine, was also caught singing Stop the Occupation as she attended the event at the Bedworth Workman's Hall on Saturday night. Charlotte Church joins me now. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Um, you've been caught red-handed, according to the Daily Mail. How does that feel? Uh, <laughs> I suppose... Um... I don't know, just, just watching, you know, your, your previous story, it just, everything just feels so heightened and so deeply emotional to me right now. Um, and to be honest, you know, I hate the idea that anybody thinks that I am at all anti-Semitic or trying to um, make things more divisive. Uh, but I stand by everything that we sang on Saturday. It was really beautiful. It was such a beautiful event. It was so sweet. It was so humble. It was people, an intergenerational choir from all over the country. Um, it was, it was, it was deeply, it was a deeply spiritual experience for me. And uh, I would do it again 100 times and plan to. It was going through those headlines, you know, if I were you, the one that would really annoy me, because you've got lots of these sort of right wing websites and you can imagine sort of getting criticism from these right-wing websites. But the BBC headline, Charlotte Church denies anti-Semitism after pro-Palestinian chart criticism. It's sort of like, it's phrased in this language of, of neutrality, but it's put your name next to anti-Semitism. Charlotte Church denies anti-Semitism. I suppose, 
I mean, is it that BBC headline that annoys you the most? Uh, I think the one that annoyed me most actually was hang a head in shame because uh, that's really deeply loaded and, and I feel has sort of more connotations for how uh, how protesters or activists or even women um, uh, sh- should be feeling or should be carrying themselves, should be behaving. Um, so that was the one that, uh, that, that I found sort of uh, most prickly. But, you know, as I say, it, it, it's like, I mean, as, as far as the chant goes, it, you know, it's a, it's a really powerful chant that every single activist that I have met, every march that I've been on in every context that I've ever heard it sound has always been for the, uh, for the human rights and for the equal liberty of Palestinian people as well as Israeli people on the lands of Palestine and Israel. And that is what I've always taken it and understood it to mean. And that's what I think it does mean. Um, and to, to sort of, for anybody who is sort of taking from that genocidal intent towards Israel or about there not being a state of Israel, I think is is misguided. For it's not that's not what the chant means. And uh, yeah, and I think it's there's just such double speak going on currently um, in in all in all areas um, around. Uh, this this conflict or this genocide more like what's what's happening and it's it's it really boggles the brain um and so I I feel like I'm just trying to stay in the feelings you know in the emotions of what's happening um and it's deeply emotional and and I feel like um what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to call people to to, to engage, to, to watch the videos, to understand what's happening, but really to engage their hearts, their emotions, not just their sort of mind and their critical capacity. This is, you know, this is about essentially the slaughter of tens of thousands of innocent people and the slaughter of children. What is happening in Gaza is a hell on earth. A hell on earth is being created. People are being purposefully starved and <laughs> and it's emotional, you know, and so I'm doing whatever I can, you know, using my skill set to try and help people understand, help people connect with the emotions and connect with, um, you know, the, the the deep injustice of of what's going on and using song, which has always been a unifier, singing together. It is one of the most unifying things that we can do. So my my hope and my hope in all of my activism around Palestine has been to um, to tr- to try and do whatever I can to to bring more healing, bring more union, bring more understanding, and but 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 also just to keep at its core the liberation of the Palestinian people. This is what decades of activists have been fighting for. It was really humbling for me on Saturday. I was singing with a lot of the members of the Kor Kochion Choir. Um, and they have been deeply involved in the Palestinian struggle for, for decades. They went over to Palestine. Lots of the songs that they taught, all of the choir were in Arabic, in Welsh. They were South African anti-apartheid songs with the lyrics amended to be um, pertinent to Palestine. So I feel, I feel deeply humbled and deeply grateful to have been a part of such a beautiful event with such incredible activists that I, I just felt completely 
enamored and indebted to. You sound like you're very much taking this in your stride. I think many of our audience will be, you know, very impressed with your your integrity here. You're sort of being smeared, I think, by by many, you know, your name appearing in headlines sort of all of the major publications in the UK and you're not being sort of deterred from from taking part in in activism such as this. I mean, I suppose I want to ask you to sort of talk about the people who might be deterred. So obviously you're a person in the public eye, you've got a music career, and for, yes. for many people, the idea of seeing your name appear in all of these headlines next to the word anti-Semitism would absolutely um, prevent them from doing this again, because they just think, oh, this is too much, I can't deal with this. I mean, are, are you in contact with sort of people in the arts who do feel that they're not in a position where they can sort of um, brush off headlines such as this and so avoid publicly displaying pal- solidarity Sorry, with, with, with Palestinians? I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who feel that the risk is too great, um, who have a lot to lose. And I get it. You know, I am. It's not it's not been a pleasant day for me. You know, it's not just water off a deck's back. I, I really I've really had a very uncomfortable day. It's not pleasant. And um, yeah, but however, my my feeling, I feel nothing has ever affected me more than what has been happening in the last couple of months, the the struggle that I've been seeing, that I've been witnessing, the loss of life, the death, um, the destruction, um, the, in some cases, like really evil actions of IDF soldiers. Um, and for me, this is the greatest spiritual, um, uh, like activation and and quest of of certainly of of my lifetime which um I will not be deterred from like I I feel so unbelievably like to my core motivated to do as much as I possibly can uh particularly to to have a ceasefire like that is that is really all so many of us are calling for like please like whatever the the, the wider connotations, the complexities, like, please just stop killing innocent people. Stop killing children. Um, I, it's not a fringe opinion, and it shouldn't be a fringe opinion when you've got the highest court in the land who are pretty much looking like this is definitely a genocide. Um, and it makes me it makes me think of uh, a quote by Carl Jung, um, uh, which has been, like, just, just with me for, for the last couple of months, which is, uh, the spirit of evil is a negation of the life force by fear, and only boldness can deliver us from fear. And if the risk is not taken, the meaning of life is violated. And that's how I feel about it. Really, really powerful. I, my my last question I'm going to ask, I think on behalf of my mum. Um, so she is both <laughs> in a community choir in East London and has been going on all the Palestine demos she can um, you know, find time to go on. So I am sure she would want to know how can she combine her two interests? Um, lots of people in community choirs, lots of people very passionate about Palestine. Are you going to be going on tour? Can they find these songs somewhere online? Absolutely. I think I'll, I'll be working with Cord Cochion and our our choir that we formed, our wonderful choir, which I'm, I'm so grateful to all of those beautiful people from across the UK who came together. But yes, well, we're going to figure out where we go next and how we make this singing for liberation a bigger movement because it is at its core it is peaceful it is joyful it is powerful because uh remember um 
everything is energy. You know, everything in this whole existence is energy and frequency and sound has a big, big role to play in it. People have been singing for freedom all over the world since time began. And so I think it's it's a very powerful um, form of protest, which I am just absolutely um, overjoyed to be a part of, to be honest. I'll just read you a super chat from Joseph Bates before I let you go. Huge respect to Charlotte for not backing down and summing everything up perfectly. I do concur. Um, Charlotte, thank you so much um, for joining us on Navarro Media this evening. Thank you so much. And I also want to say to you guys at Navarra Media, me and my husband and my, my, my teenagers are massive fans of Navarra Media. And we are very grateful for all that you do. Oh, thank you so much. That is very, very um, meaningful and special to hear. So thank you for that. We've got one story to get through this evening. Bald and Bankrupt is a British vlog channel. Its host is Benjamin Rich, and he's gotten millions of views filming himself traveling across some of the most dangerous places in the world. They include the Darien Gap, known as the most, the world's most dangerous jungle, and the fallout zone from Chernobyl. But his latest video was filmed closer to home. This is Benjamin Rich in Plymouth. Centre of a British city, a major British city. Homeless people just sleeping rough. You can't help but think when you see things like this, that Britain's glory days, Britain's best days, are so long gone and so far behind us. And the truth is, I can't see how we ever get them back. Look at the state of this place. And look at this. The Great Western Hotel, a beautiful old building, built probably in Victorian times. Look at it. We used to build things like this, magnificent buildings. And look at the squalor and what it's been reduced to. Look, it's even got up here a mosaic, the Spanish Armada, leaving Spain to come be defeated by the British. Look at it, this place, the amount of money spent on it. And now just destroyed and, well, probably full of homeless people and drug users. What a sad, sad state of affairs for this once great nation. It's a very, very interesting concept for a video. So this is a guy, as I say, who's often sort of going to places which are, you know, traditionally thought of as desolate. So the fallout zone from Chernobyl. I think he spends lots of time in sort of post-Soviet spaces. And then, as I say, sort of in dangerous jungles. But sort of using that form of the travel log um, to talk about Britain's declining towns, um, I thought was very interesting. Um, so that was him in Plymouth. Um, he then looked at, a number of other derelict buildings in Plymouth and before trying to get a trip to another seaside town. But look at all the places we can go to here from Plymouth. We can go to Gunnis Lake, sounds lovely. Penzance, London Paddington. But no, we're going to a place called Western Supermare. Let's go and buy a ticket. Western Supermare, one way. £50.10. And that's off-peak, is it? £50.10. Flipping heck. What's an on-peak? I'm not spending 50 quid to get to Western Supermare. It's a flipping rip-off. The ticket prices like that might be one reason British provincial towns and cities are so run down. If they're badly connected, they're less attractive places to live. Um, after getting a lift to Western Supermare, which was in worse nick than Plymouth, Ben Rich ended up in Harden near Sunderland. And this is what he discovered. Look at this, what they've done here to smarten up the streets of abandoned buildings. Over there, you can see that house, obviously abandoned, number 66. 
And here's abandoned too. And I thought actually it was some blinds in a window, but it's not, it's a picture of blinds in a window. And look at this, it's not a real door. It's a picture of a door. I suppose the council want to kind of make the place look a bit better and more up here, look up here. This is so freaky. The council, I suppose, to make the place look better, have put these fake windows and fake doors on the buildings so it doesn't look totally derelict and abandoned. Look at this. That's not a curtain, that's a picture of a curtain. They stole your bike? They stole my bike. Well, literally, they, they took all the ignition off it so that I couldn't ride it. Right. And then there were four attempts to take that, and on the fifth attempt, they took it. And then I've got another one, and we've got, yeah, five attempts on that bike. But I put all sorts of motion sensors and little things. What about burglaries? Anyone tried burgling you? Um, I've had the doors banged a oh few times. God. Girl over there got attacked. Oh, my God. It's really not a nice area. I spent most of that interview at the end there trying to distracted by working out whether or not the various windows and doors we were looking at were real or fake. Um, Aaron, this is a sort of topic you've been talking about for a while, um, the decline of town centres and towns in general um, outside of London and the South East. Um, interesting, this has gone so viral. I think sort of two million views of that one about those those windows and doors that weren't real. Um, what do you make of this now becoming sort of a topic for for vloggers? Well, it was a matter of time. I mean, you can see with your own eyes how bad the situation is. If you look at um, cities by uh, GDP per capita per person, you take away London. Michael, we don't really have any rich cities in this country. Uh, major cities. I mean, Edinburgh is very wealthy, but places like uh, Leeds, Newcastle, Leicester, Southampton, Cardiff, Exeter. These are not rich. They're not rich places. That cities in Poland are wealthier than them, on a on a per per person basis. PPP. So using the domestic currency rather than nominal GDP using dollars. We are not a rich country. We have a very wealthy mega city, and we have a poor country bolted onto it with some enclaves of prosperity. There are, of course, some places which are incredibly rich in this country, uh, but it's not as widespread as people like to think. And even in the southeast of England, Michael, nothing as bad as that. The northeast, by the way, has major problems. I think its GDP per head is around £25,000. Even that obscures quite a lot because, of course, you still have quite affluent parts of the northeast, parts of Newcastle, parts of County Durham, where uh, Dominic Cummings is from. And then you have places like that, you know, somewhere like we just saw there a moment ago, you know, probably has a GDP per head of, of less than 20,000 um, pounds. You know, it's it's probably poorer than somewhere like, not probably, it will be poorer than somewhere like Croatia. Uh, it'll be as poor as many of the poorest parts of Eastern Europe. And you take away then the state, you take away, you know, the NHS or the public pension system. In terms of, in terms of wealth being created by the private sector, it's minimal. It is completely dysfunctional and broken, far worse even than East Germany um, in the now integrated, of course, um, 
German Republic. Uh, it's a massive, massive problem, Michael. And I do think uh, our political class don't really understand the scale of it because, of course, they're in London. Now, many of them represent seats not in London. But when everybody who matters, everybody who you listen to, everybody with status, everybody who can dole out favors is inside the M25, people outside it, um, inside the M25 rather, people outside it start to matter less and less and less. And I think, frankly, this country, I mean particularly England, um, has to go back to first principles. We have to completely discard and get rid of all of these nonsensical ideas we've told ourselves for ourselves for decades, from really post-imperial grandeur when it comes to foreign policy, stop invading countries. We're still, you know, bombing right now parts of Yemen alongside the US. Just stop it, right? We can't police the Red Sea uh, when, you know, we, we, we have high streets in the condition that we do. You know, that is just a, a stupid, um, misguided view of our role in the world. I think the same applies to nuclear weapons, personally. But if you have nuclear weapons, you probably don't want to spend so much on a conventional army. You certainly don't need aircraft carriers, which are costing three, four billion a pop, and then they don't even bloody work. So I think that's the first thing we have to do here, is actually get rid of all the, the nonsense that we tell ourselves about who we are. And that includes London. And that's why I think we should move the capital city outside of London, move it to Derby, move it to Stoke, move it right into the middle of England. I know it's the UK capital, but right into the middle of England, at the very least, of course, if it was the middle of the UK, it would be really high up. The population centres of the south, I, sh I think, should be weighted for this, and, and the northwest of England. So somewhere like Derby would be very good. And I think if you've got a capital city in Derby, then it's very hard for politicians to lie to themselves about the state of the country because they can't go to Bond Street or Mayfair or Shoreditch or Dulwich or Soho and tell themselves everything is hunky-dory. They will see the reality of the situation. And the reality is very, very bad. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.